0: All right. I think it's always come on in. I always think it's helpful uh, with any of Paul's writings, but especially with the book of Philippians to uh, kind of always make sure we're in the same flow as as, as his uh, flow of thought. As I mentioned before, Paul's very good about building upon things that he says and how he almost flows seamlessly into other thoughts. And especially with the book of Philippians here, uh, the thing I appreciate about it is that he he will be talking about something and that will lead him to build on it and then flow into another discussion that really is not another discussion because it's still a part of the original thought that he had. And he does such a good job of that. And of course, as we go through the book of Philippians so far, we had the customary greeting, of course, and, um, don't stick behind me. (laughs) Um, had the customary greeting, of course, and then he begins um, thanking the church at Philippi for their fellowship or their partnership in the gospel, and how that he hey come on in, how he has um, been supported by them and uh, all the different churches that he has been a part of, and how even now that they support him while he 's here in prison in fact we make mention again that they sent Epaphroditus uh, to to them and I keep bringing him up because of the fact that later on in the book of Philippians there will be a discussion about him, and so we're already setting the stage about who this particular man is. But after talking about their partnership, that leads him to a very emotional uh, couple of verses, uh, talking about how he longs to be with them and how that he'd rather be nowhere else because of his great love for them. And then he uh, talks about the things that he is praying for as far as their lives are concerned, and then he perhaps answers the question that was sent to him uh, by Epaphroditus, uh, or through Epaphroditus by the church, and they want to know how he was doing in prison. And um, beginning at verse 12, he tells them, this is something you need to understand, that even though he's in prison, the gospel's being preached. And that's the most important thing as far as he is concerned. And And this is interesting, the next thing he talks about, because it's still a part of the things we're going to be talking about tonight as we're going to discover. He mentions how that there were uh, preachers there in Rome that for their own selfish reasons were saying things that were bad about Paul, to make people think bad things about Paul, to bring Paul down a notch, if you will. But to show you the love and the unselfishness of Paul... He says, well, that doesn't bother me at all. People can talk bad about me all they want as long as the gospel is being preached. That was his main thing. And, uh, in fact, he, he makes the bold statement after saying that in verse 18 at the end of it, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. He's not rejoicing because people are saying bad things about him. He's rejoicing because even though they're saying bad things about him, they're still preaching the truth, and that's the gospel. And, and the gospel needs to be preached, so he'll rejoice in that. And that leads him to a discussion about his own salvation and talking about what's going to happen to him. Is he going to live or going to die when he gets to his trial? And as we even talked about Sunday, he's just not quite sure. Uh, to live as Christ and to die is gain. And he's stuck in the middle there trying to decide. But as we talked about, after he weighs the pros and cons of it, he decides it's more needful for him to stay on this earth because of those Philippian brethren that he loved. And, um, and so, after he makes mention of the fact that it's needful that he stays here on this earth, it makes him think about the church at Philippi, and he talks to them about the number one thing that he wants for that church. He believes if he gets this in this church, then everything else will kind of fall into place, and that is he wants them to be unified. He wants them to have unity, and he makes several mentions of several different things. We won't take the time to do it tonight because, we've, because we don't have the time, but but all these different things that show their oneness and show how that they should be unified. And then last Sunday, to bring the point really home, uh, he begins this discussion in verse 5 about letting this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And um, I talked about last Sunday how that even though he was equal with God, even though he had the right to remain God in heaven, he humbled himself or literally drained himself completely of his independence and became a dependent man. As God, he was independent, but as man, he becomes uh, dependent. And he decided that he was going to be dependent to God in everything, that no matter what he did on this earth, it would be based upon his dependence upon God. And, of course, he became the very form of what a servant should be or the the true likeness of what a servant should be and, um, of course, became... Um, humbled himself and became obedient uh, even to the point of death. And that death, of course, was on the cross, and that's where we uh, stopped last Sunday. But I wanted to make sure we understood the point that Paul is making here and make sure we understand the flow of everything. Um, he's talking about in, in in this particular section, which I think will tie into everything, because it ties into the fact that they were partners. It ties into the fact that he loves this church probably more than any other congregation. It, it, it coincides with the fact that uh, the prayers that he has for this church and how he longs to be with them and how that he finds it needful to stay on this planet a little while longer because they needed him. It all ties into this one idea. He wants them to be unified. So how does this discussion of being unified fit with, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus? We didn't get to really spend a lot of time exploring that before we left Sunday. So what is, what's the point he is making with these three verses that are so beautiful? If you're talking about unity and you use the example of these three verses, verses 5, um, 6, 7, and then add 8 to it, what, what, do you, what, do you, what does it make you think about? What's, he trying to, what's the point he's trying to drive home when it comes to us as individual members in the church? Okay. All right. And if we are servants in the church, there's more, more of the possibility that we'll be unified as opposed to somebody wanting to be masters in the church. Well, that's, that's a good point. Yes. Absolutely. In fact, earlier in the text, Paul. what did Paul say? He says, let not your mind be on your own things, but on the things of others. Now, he's not talking about being a busybody or getting in people's business. He's talking about look at the other guy and be on his side. It's not about you. It's about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Yes, Grady. Think about this for a moment. This is what Grady says. A lot of people... The reason why they cause division in a church is because of selfishness. It's because of jealousy. It's because I want to have things done my way, and if you don't have the things done my way, then Katie bar the door. Um, I won't make mention of where this was, but uh, there were some members of the church that I went to go visit. Uh, When they weren't members of the church, they had... uh, Started attending and wanted. I was trying to talk to them about being members of the church. They were members of the Church of Christ at large, but they hadn't identified with the congregation. And so I explained to them how we needed them in the church and how we enjoy having them and whatnot. And the the husband of the of the family said, "Well, we we more than likely will identify with your congregation, but don't expect us to do anything." And I felt like saying, "Well, you're not really identifying with the church. You're just going to be attending," <laughs> you know. In fact, the same person said, well, you know, don't expect us to be there any time but one service. And I said, well, well, if that's what you feel, we still would love to have you because we won't, we you know, because you never know what might come of it if they started attending. Um, of course, other people have gotten mad about things that oftentimes are silly things and decided to um, either cause division within the church or leave the church, which causes a, a sort of a division because you have divided yourself away from the church. Um, I know uh, dealing with elderships and they're dealing with the membership that oftentimes um, a congregation will, will be cognitive of the fact that they're supposed to be under the eldership and listen to the advice they give the, the, as the shepherd to the sheep and they say that's the way it should be until they disagree with them. And then once they disagree with the elders, then the elders don't know what they're talking about. And then that means they really didn't mourn under their eldership at all ever at one time. They just always agreed with what the elder said. And my point in all this is, what Paul wants the Philippian brother to understand is when you feel pride right welling up, or you feel your own selfish desire welling up in what you want to do in the church, and it doesn't agree with what the church as a whole want to do, or if you have some other pet peeve that says, well, I'm just going to go somewhere else, Paul says, remember where Christ was and what he did? He was the most unselfish person who ever lived. He put everybody's needs above everybody else. He was God. He did have it all. He was getting his own way. He was completely independent to do whatever he wanted to do because that's just the very nature of God. But he drained himself completely of that for the good and the betterment and the salvation of the church. Uh, Karen? Absolutely. And, of course, Jesus' life was always exhibited, um, summed up in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was praying so hard in the garden that the sweat on his foreheads were like sweat drops of blood, and depending on who you talk to, maybe there was even blood busting through his forehead and the capillaries and coming down his blood. But he kept praying, if there's any, and I'm paraphrasing, if there's any way that you can let this cup pass. And I don't believe Jesus was a coward, that he was afraid of dying. I believe Jesus knew he had had on his back the sins of the entire world. Ever had been committed and ever will be committed. And some of those sins are just as heinous as they can be, but they're still all sin. And he's saying, let this cup pass, but always, not my will, but thy will be done. And um, that shows you the, the humble obedience of Jesus Christ. And that's what, he, that, that's what he means at the very last part of verse 8. When it says, becomes obedient unto death. When the rocks hit the, hit the pavement, if you will, or the rubber hit the road. When it finally came down to the ultimate test of his obedience. It's when he did this. And that's how his obedience came unto death. Yes, Glenn. Very good point, and that drives home the point of his total unselfishness and his total obedience and dependency from God. Think about it. When he was separated from God for a point in time, God had separated from God, and he totally gave up everything in that point of time. He, when he separated from God, he, he was, that was the ultimate way that he had, if you will, drained himself from heaven because he he no longer was in the presence of God but he was always in the presence of his father here on this earth but on that occasion i don't believe that the sky, tur- sky quit shining or the sun quit shining on that particular occasion when he was crucified i believe it hit his face in shame that God had actually uh, forsaken his his only begotten son yes jeff now come over him. And that's what makes him the ultimate servant you know we talked about last Sunday how that word the form of a servant means here's here's the definition here if you want to look up the word servant or slave here's the definition up right here that's the idea behind that word form yes great uh, absolutely and, and of course what causes so much confusion about um, interpreting this book is the other things that men add to it they can't just go to the scripture they have to uh, for example we're going to talk if we have time tonight a little bit later on, talk about the, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, they weren't satisfied with just saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. A bunch of men had to get together and come up with the Apostles' Creed. And they were almost fistfights over that, how that should be worded and how, whether or not that should be a good definition of what Jesus, uh, what it means to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. They couldn't just say, well, let's just leave it, confess Jesus, Son of God. Let's pick this apart and b- break it up and see what it really means. Yes, flood. And 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 Paul um addresses those things in other books, but now he's dealing with unity in the church. This is that's the, yeah, this is a specific point he's talking about now. But he deals with that in in first and second Corinthians and some other places. Um Galatians um the first couple of verses of chapter six, he deals with that, with the, also with the church and also those who aren't a part of the church. So, I agree, but that's not the topic of discussion. His topic of discussion is unity in the church. That's what he's trying to drive home to the Philippians. That's a good discussion, and we can have a discussion on it. But that's not exactly what's happening here in these verses here. Um, for example, verses five through eight um, is a great discussion just in and of itself about what Jesus did and about our salvation and about. Uh, a fancy subject called uh, Christology, But the whole point of why he's saying all this, and that's why context is always important, this beautiful section of Scripture here, some people call it one of the most beautiful, uh, they say it should be written into a song, and maybe even Paul thought it was supposed to be a song, is all in reference to unity. That's where the whole discussion came from. Okay? And so his point is, of course, that... um, you need to make sure that you have the same mind that Jesus Christ has when it comes to unity, and that is being of a servant, not getting your way. Uh, Instead, uh, bowing down and thinking about other people first before you think of yourself. All that being said, and we spend a lot of time on that, which don't mind because we need to spend a lot of time on it, uh, let's look at verses uh, 9 through 11. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Once again, a very beautiful section of scripture here. Kind of just almost rolls off the tongue here in the King James, but let me make, let's make sure we understand what's happening in and how this how this all fits. But the whole theme of what he's been talking about, he's been talking about unity. He gives us Christ as the supreme example of unselfishness in making sure that God's will was being done, and that's in reference to unity once again, and then after saying that he was the ultimate servant the one who was obedient even to the point of death, then you have the word in verse 9, Wherefore. Wherefore. Because Jesus did this, God did this. Now here's the thing that we sometimes miss when we read this section of Scripture I think is amazing. And you've got you to kind of see it between the lines because you first read it, you don't catch it. It says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Now, in these verses, he's highly exalted. He's going to be given a name greater than any other name. He's going to have every knee bow, and he's going to have every tongue confess. Who did that to him? It's not a trick question. Who who, who did that to him? God. Don't be scared. God did it to him. Now here's a little nuance we sometimes miss. Remember we said that Jesus emptied himself and gave totally dependent became totally dependent upon God. Even after God raised him from the dead and he ascended up to heaven, all these things that are given to him, this glory, this name, this idea that every person in the world will worship him, and every person in the world one day will confess his name. He's still showing his dependence from God because he didn't grasp that. He didn't say, I deserve that. That was given to him by God. And so this idea of dependence upon God when he became a man is carried over to that thought even as he goes into heaven. Now, he's on the right hand of God now. He's equal with God again. But yet he's equal with God again because God made it happen. Christ carried out on that dependence all the way to the point when he gets to heaven again. Because the text is very clear. It says that God is the one who did all this. Christ didn't do this for himself. God did all this. And it says that he highly exalted him. Um, obviously, there's the idea behind that, that, that he made him exalted in the sense that he raised him up and put him on a pedestal, if you will. But there's something more going on here. If you look at the, the connotations of the Greek, within these, this phrase, highly exalted, um, we could say he super-exalted him or, or made him a superman of exalted. There's the word hyper that we use, or, or huper that we use talking about really being at the tip top of it. But also in here is the idea of his resurrection. God wrote, resurrected him from the dead. God allowed him to be ascended up into heaven. And that's the way that he is exalted also. Because for the first time in history, First time ever in history, a man who was dead rose from the dead. And somebody said, Oh, that's not true. We know about other people who rose from the dead. Yeah, it's true. We can think of Lazarus. But guess what? He died again. We sometimes forget about that. We get all excited, and we should get excited about the great miracle of raising someone from the dead. Even when Jesus said to Lazarus, Have you been in the grave for several days? Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth, and he was alive. But you know what happened? He died later on. He got just a few more years, perhaps, but he still died. But the amazing thing about Jesus and how he was highly exalted was he rose from the dead never to die again. That's never ever happened before. He was the first one to get that immortal body, if you will, like we're going to get one day. Not sure how all of it works, don't know. You know, obviously Jesus had his nail print still in his hands. And so that tells us something about a supernatural body, I don't know how all that works. And don't ask me to explain it. If you have a thousand questions, I can't explain it. But Jesus was doing something for the first time that's ever been done by anybody. And he was able to not only rise from the dead, but then after he was on the earth for 50 days, he ascended up into his father in the same way one day. What will we do? We'll send up the Father. That's why he is called, referred to by Paul in other places as the firstborn of the dead. He was the first to do it all. And that's why he is being highly exalted here. Um, he is someone that um, uh, has was humiliated here on this earth, but now he's being exalted in heaven. He was the lowest of servants here on this earth, but now he's given a name that's above every name. And the reason... Um, He was given a name above every name um, because he was the first man in history to do this too. He was the first man in history to be saved by his own works. Have you ever thought about that? Christ came to this earth and he died so he can go to heaven. But who died for Christ so he could go to heaven? Nobody needed to. Why did nobody need to? Because for the first time in history ever, here was a man that succeeded where Adam and every single one of us since Adam have failed. He kept the law perfectly. He's the first person in history that had the right to stand before God and said, God, you need to take me to heaven and you need to to do this because of what I did. But then, keep in mind, He was totally dependent upon God. So the text tells us that he didn't make that demand. God gave him that. And so it's no wonder he has given him a name above every name. Well, here's the question, though. What's the name he gave him? All right. Smitty says, Lord. And if you look down at verse 11, that's probably the case. But it's amazing you look at several commentators, all the different ideas they come up with. But to me, as Smithia said, it's pretty clear to me that the name that he gave him. Uh, the Greek word kurios, and it means Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the ultimate emperor in Romans, that term, use that term. It's the ultimate emperor. He is he's the ultimate one, the ultimate ruler. And so, and it's interesting, after Jesus ascended to heaven... Through the Gospels, he's referred to Jesus. He's referred to as Christ. He's referred to in a few places, especially by his disciples as Lord. But after he ascends up into the Father, look through the book of Acts. Notice what he's called almost exclusively in the book of Acts. He's almost exclusively referred to as the Lord. And so that's a little bit of the idea of the fact that the Lord is perhaps the name that's given to him Um uh, I give him a name which is above every name. Um, and that fits into what God has always done. When there has been a change of, of, of life, a change of station, a change of exaltation, if you will, change of purpose, it was, it was something that we read about in the Bible where there's a change of name. For example, who remembers what Abraham's name was before? Abram. But when he became the father of the faithful, and that through his seed through all the generations of the earth shall be blessed, his name went from Abram to Abraham. Um, Jacob, what did his name become? Israel. Israel signified that from his children, those 12 sons, that that would be the nation of Israel would come out of. And so he changed his name from Jacob, which meant surplanter, somebody who would surplant somebody or trick someone to Israel, which meant the nation. And so uh, there's a change of name. Now, this is more of a subtle change, but when the the persecutor of Christians named Saul became a Christian and quit being the one doing the persecution and became the one being persecuted, he went by his Roman name, Paul, to show a change in nature. And this is beautifully brought out in Isaiah chapter 62 and verse 2 where Isaiah makes the prophecy that during the times of the Gentile kings, when the Gentiles come to know that there is God and who he is, that God's people will be called by a new name. You read Acts chapter 10, and you read the story about Cornelius, who was the very first Gentile convert, and you read about following that about the Christians that are being established in a Gentile city of Antioch and you get down to Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 which occurs after the Gentiles are being converted and it says they were called Christians first in Antioch. There's that new name that Isaiah has prophesied about. And now here in the text Christ now has been given his official new name. He is going to be known as Lord from here on out. Not because... Uh, He asked for it, but because God has uh, given it to him. But I kind of rambled on there for a minute. Any questions or any comments? Okay, I must have covered it well, because y'all can't think anything to add. That's just good. All right. But notice what it says, that after he's given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and the emphasis on bowing here is worship. It's not just saying I'm going to you know, bow down uh, out of just because you're Lord. It's the idea of worshiping. That every knee should bow or every person in the entire world will bow and worship God of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. Now, what is what are the things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth? All right. And that's the way I feel about it too. But once again, you believe some of the stuff you get when you read commentaries. Uh, they usually hit the thing on heaven as being angels, and they usually think the thing on earth as being um, humans. Uh, but you get to under the earth part, you got the, the, some people say it's the dead. Uh, some people say that it's the lost. Uh, some people uh, say it's other things. But I agree. This talking about, think about all the aspects of the, of the created world. You've got angels that was created by God. You've got mankind that was created by God, and you've got the fallen angels that were created by God. And the point that's being made here, because of Jesus' sacrifice and Him being given a name above every other name, the time will come when every angel, every man, and even every demon or devil is going to bow down and worship Jesus Christ. When He he finally... um, causes the world to end and of course he goes on and says and that every tongue should confess that jesus christ is lord to the glory of god the father and um, we've got a few got a few minutes but turn over to isaiah 45 and i want you to notice something that happens over there if you can find it which is of some of some significance if you will Let's see, let's find Isaiah 45 and verses 22 and 23. Isaiah 45, beginning at verse 22, uh, this is God speaking. And he says, look unto me and be ye saved. Now He's talking to the Israelite people, but oftentimes things being said in Old Testament prophecy deal with modern day prophecy. New Testament stuff. He says, "Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth." Now that's that all encompassing thing again. For I am God, and there is none else. In other words, there's no other way. I'm the only God there is. But now, look at verse 23. I have sworn by myself; the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. Now a lot of people think that this is being made reference to what we have right here, where this came into fruition in its ultimate way. If you are going to be saved, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess that He is indeed the Son of God. And so there's that parallel uh, there. And as I mentioned earlier... Uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 tell us that if we're going to be saved, we have to confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, about 300 years after Jesus was on the face of this earth, a bunch of people got together and said, we need to write a special creed to explain what was meant in this particular verse, about what does it mean to confess Jesus Christ. And they came up with the Apostles' Creed, even though the apostles were nowhere to be found by that time. They'd been dead for hundreds of years. And people literally almost came to blows trying to decide what it was said. And some people were excommunicated out of the church at that time because they didn't agree with what the other people said. And there was a huge division over it. Which is pretty ironic when you think about the fact that this very section of Scripture is about having unity in the church. They kind of lost sight of what the whole point of the verse was. Well, i was running out of time, but notice that it says that he did all this for what reason in verse 11? Why did Jesus do everything that he did, the glory of God. Now, I want you to notice what Paul has done here without us even catching it, maybe. Look at verse 11, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at that verse, and then I want you to look at verse 3. And see what Paul's done there. And we, and we might not even realize he was pulling that on us, but he pulled it on us. You see what I'm talking about? He talks about something in verse 3. The King James is really easy to see because he uses the same word except for he adds something to it. He says in verse 3, the King James, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Now, vain glory... It's the kind of empty glory that a person gives himself. If you're the one giving yourself the glory, it's really not glory. Because glory can't come from self. I mean, uh, I can look in the mirror like that guy used to on Saturday Night Live hundreds of years ago and say, you're a good guy. You're all right. I love you. Well, you can tell yourself all that and, and build yourself up, which is not wrong with having positive thoughts. But real glory doesn't come from you. That's selfish. Real glory comes from someone else. And so the point he's driving home as he comes to the section of this little pericope of Scripture here is he started with a discussion about it's not about your glory. When it comes to unity in the church, it's not about your way or the highway. It's not about me building you up and putting you up and make you think you're more important than what you are. It's all about the glory of God. And if there was ever a person who did what everything that he did, it was for the purpose of the glory of God. Now notice what else happens in that verse when you think about it. It's for the glory of God. And if you look at what's happening in that verse, you've got people uh, confessing the name of Jesus Christ. And as we've already talked about, that if every tongue will confess that's the idea of, of becoming a Christian. Person who truly confesses the name of Jesus Christ and does the things that he wants them, they become a Christian. Well, what's the purpose of the church? It's to get people to worship God and it's to convert people. Why? Because when people are worshiping God and people are being converted to God, who gets the glory? God gets the glory. So, really, what unity is all about, when it comes down to it, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? And that really, folks, is the whole thing that Paul began talking about in um, verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. It all came down to this You want unity in the church? Who gets the glory? Jesus is your example. He knew who's supposed to get the glory. And he was totally unselfishly dependent upon God because he wanted to give God the glory. Well, Somebody might say, well, I know why Jesus did all this stuff now. He did this so he could get the glory. Well, here's something you need to understand. The point of the text is that if we will humble ourselves and be the kind of person that we need to be, what will happen to us one day? We, in a sense, will do the same thing that he did. Um, it's the idea of, um, I'll tell you what, real quick, I don't have time to look up. If somebody else has got one of those quick little pads like Glenn has, look up First Peter 5, 6. Whoever gets their fingers working the fastest, read it. All right, just like this passage, there's humbleness, exaltation. And so the bottom line um, that's being talked about here is the E factor. Y'all have heard of the E factor, hadn't you? You know what the E factor is? It's the eternity factor. Everything should be taken in consideration as far as eternity is concerned. And that's what Jesus was. Well, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for your attention and your uh, discussion this evening. And we look forward to our next lesson.